Um, right, while I am actually getting myself ready, what you could do is get yourself a Bible. If you don't have one with you or on your device, use one of these. Turn it to page 1054. If you have a device in another, uh, Bible in another form, look up Luke, which is the book name you'll find in the contents page if you don't know where that is. Chapter 20, big number 20, small number 9, verse 9. And it's sometimes called the parable of the tenants. That's what you might read as the heading in your Bible. Now, I'm going to need the slidey slides, which is somewhere. Matt's got it there. Thank you, Matt. So you get them. Now, Al, you're reading for us today. Do you want to come up and get yourself ready? I'll turn to you when it's your time to, uh, time to speak in just a moment. Thank you. We have been putting things off for year after year. The moment of crisis has come. As I speak, South Australia is on fire. Why? Because the temperatures of Earth are increasing. Earlier this week, Sir David issued this final warning for the climate. We're at a point of crisis, the point of no return. Uh, and these calls have been coming for 200 years or so when we start, first started thinking about climate change and global warming. And there's been warning after warning, uh, evidence building up over the years, uh, and there's going to be dire consequences if we fail to act. Here's something else he said. We're hacking away at our safety net. We're trashing environments that we depend on. Every year that passes makes recovery more and more difficult to achieve. So we've got this pattern in this warning. We've ignored evidence of the past. We're rejecting the warning of the present. And there's going to be dire consequences coming in the future. And so we have to be aware of what this warning is and think about the consequences. It's like driving. We're pootling along on green. Quite the thing not paying too much attention. We've been ignoring what's going on in the past. The warning comes. Amber comes on. The warning of the present. Here's your chance. Change your ways or else fail to do that and there's going to be dire consequences in the future. And anyone who's run a red light will uh, testify to that in one way or another. Sometimes serious. Now, we're coming towards the climax of our week-by-week look through the Bible, through a section of the Bible, uh, the life of Jesus, as told by a doctor called Luke. Uh, and we're, we're in the middle of a three-year ministry of Jesus, and Jesus has been issuing stark warnings the whole time, warning after warning, all the way along. And we come to a section now where he issues his final warning, the clearest and maybe one of the most important warnings of all. This is the last one before the climax of his ministry, just in a few days' time, although it's going to take us many weeks to work our way through that section. And it follows the same pattern. Jesus is saying, you've ignored the past. You've ignored the evidence here. You're rejecting the warning that I'm giving you now. And there's dire consequences to come in the future. The amber light is on, and it's about to turn red. And over to you. (laughs) He went on to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one was also beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son 
whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and said and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls onto that stone will be broken to pieces. Everyone or anyone whom whom it falls on will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable to them. But they were afraid of the people. Thank you. Excellent. Great. Now, if you're familiar with the, uh, Luke's account of the life of Jesus, you'll know that Jesus often told these stories, what are called parables in the Bible, that are stories with a point. And sometimes, frankly, they can be quite hard to understand. Some of these parables are very complicated, very sort of difficult to make sense of. But, the light, but Luke here helps us out, because if you look down at verse 19, little number 19, just at the bottom of the passage, he has this little commentary. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him, that's Jesus, immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So here's what this one's about. It's a warning to the leaders of Israel and to the nation at large. It's an amber light just about to turn red. You've ignored the past. You're rejecting my warnings of the present. Dire consequences are coming in the future. So let's look at it in those three three headings. So evidence of the past, warning of the present, consequences of the future. So let's start verse 9, evidence of the past. So it says there, a man planted a vineyard, look down verse 9, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Now, so far, so boring, right? Doesn't sound like much to us if you're familiar with Jesus' parables. Sounds like many other parables that he told. But for Jews listening, their ears have just pricked up because the language Jesus is using is deeply familiar to them. Planting, renting, going away for a long time. And in the first part of the Bible, the nation of Israel is often described as a vineyard, God's vineyard that he planted and he tended to and he cared for, poetically described. Uh, And and the, the fruit of this vineyard, the result of this vineyard was to produce a display to the other nations of the world. God chose Israel to be his chosen nation and they were to show other nations what God is like, to be his ambassadors to the world. People were to look at the nation of Israel and see by the way they acted, cared for their citizens, lived, worked, worshipped, bought, sold, dressed, spoke. Everything about them was to, designed to show what God's character is, his love, his power, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his holiness, his justice. They were to be this model nation. Uh, Listen to this uh, part of a poetic song written 600 years before by a guy called Isaiah. It says this, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So all the Jews listening to Jesus here are in no doubt this is about us. Jesus is talking about them. Their ears prick up. He's talking about us. And the tenants represent their leaders. So let's read on. Verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant 
to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So this is now sometime later, long enough for the field to go from zero, nothing planted, to producing fruit. So we're talking a number of years here. The time doesn't really matter, but it's supposed to be a long time in the story, mirroring Israel's long history. And this is what the owner has been waiting for. This is why he planted the vineyard, why he hired the tenants, why he tended it, why he cared for it, to produce this fruit. It's been their job all these years to tend for the vines and make some fruit. And whatever fruit there is, is perfectly rightly the owner's because he owns it. So the servant, he sends a servant to, to turn up at the vineyard. Servant explains who he, is, who he is, but instead of getting what his employer is owed, he gets beaten up and kicked out. The word there is like a good thrashing. He gets a good old thrashing and they turf him back out again. Doesn't even get his foot in the door. Doesn't get a tour of the bottling facility. No taste of the wine. No chomp of a grape. He's just beaten up and turned out. So a second servant is sent, but he gets it even worse than the first. It says that he, look at verse 11, he was treated shamefully. Doesn't describe what that means, but not well. And he was given no fruit. So a third is sent. Now, maybe this guy's the more senior guy. Uh, Maybe he's ready to argue the case, forceful personality perhaps, not one to be pushed around by these tenants. But he has it the worst of the three. He's wounded, it says, and he's thrown out. Look at verse 12 there. Now, us thinking, we're thinking, well, that's that's outrageous. It's this guy's field. These are his vines. These are his tenants. It's obviously his fruit. Absolutely outrageous. It's not even like these guys are squatters and he's trying to kick them out, and so they're angry about that. He's just saying... I want some of the fruit. That's all I want. I don't want rid of you. I just want some of the fruit. Um, and they're responding with violence and intimidation. And we're saying, well, that's pretty poor, poor show. But in fact, again, for the Jews listening, they're pretty sanguine about this description so far because Jesus has just pretty accurately described about a thousand years of Jewish history. So this is just a history lesson for the Jews. The earlier part of the Bible, the whole bit to the left of what you've got open at the moment, shows a repeating pattern that if you read it, you can pick up on that God chooses and blesses Israel to be his precious nation, to look after them, to tend for them. And they're to live as his ambassadors, but they spectacularly fail time after time. And yet, with unending patience, God seeks them out, he delivers them, he remakes his promises to them to look after them and bless them, gives them another chance. uh, And if they will follow him again and do what he says, then life will go well for them. But the cycle starts all over again. We have this cycle on and on and on. God blesses Israel. Israel fails, but yet God delivers. He blesses them again. They fail again. He delivers them again. Cycle after cycle after cycle. You can read the whole part of the Bible, and it's pattern after pattern. One example we can see back in that same bit of Isaiah, that bit we read 600 years earlier, he says this, part of his song goes like this. This may be the bridge, this bit. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? There should have been good fruit. There should have been fruit. But they've produced only failure time and time again. Again, this isn't shocking for the Jews. They know this. They know their Bible. It wasn't called the Bible back then, but they know these scriptures that we have now. Uh, And so they're not shocked by this. They'll have learned this as kids. uh, And what sounds fairly shocking behavior to us sounds so far so boring to them. So there's the evidence of the past. Failure after failure by Israel. Chance after chance by God ignoring the evidence of the past. And so we come to the warning of the present, back to the passage. Well, what now? What would you be doing at this stage? If you were the owner, what would you think? Well, 
I think we're probably thinking we're being for blood, turf them out, send in the Marines, stick them in jail, whatever it is. But the owner is different. Look at down at verse 13. He has this kind of period of reflection um, where he's been hugely patient already, sending servant after servant after servant. But despite everything, he's giving these tenants chance after chance. I don't know, would your boss at work, I'm a boss at work, would I be as patient with people who were uh, failing to meet their yearly objectives even? Uh, what about if they beat up the management? Would I be as patient as that? Almost certainly not. I wonder how you would be. But this soliloquy is meant to be Jesus reflecting on how God has dealt with Israel. Unending patience. Despite the track record, tenderly wooing them back, delivering them time after time, only to have his uh, gentle love sort of rejected with opposition, violent opposition. And we're meant to feel sorry for the owner here. You're meant to read that bit, and it's meant to be tender, it's meant to be sorrowful. And we're meant to sort of feel sorry for God here. His precious nation, Israel, the, the nation that he's looked after and, and uh, been so kind to, has rejected him harshly, time and time again. But there's one more person left to send, the most senior person possible, the owner's only son. Verse 13 again, look down. What shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. The wording there is slightly peculiar. What shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Slightly peculiar tenderness there. Uh, and you might, it might ring some bells if you've been with us over the past wee while. I've been looking through Luke. That kind of phrase has appeared twice already. Uh, both at Jesus' baptism back in chapter 3 of Luke, you can look that up later, and a terrifying encounter on top of a mountain when heaven opens in Luke 11. And both times, in those both passages, God himself speaks from heaven. This doesn't happen often in the Bible. It's not a, not a frequent occurrence. But God speaks from heaven over Jesus and says these things back in Luke 3. A voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, Jesus. With you I am well pleased. Then Luke 11, a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. Jesus is deliberately using that language and introducing himself into this story. He is the precious son that the owner sends. He is the one who carries the full authority of the owner. There is no one more senior. He is God's son sent to warn Israel. But Jesus is saying, listen up, Israel. I am the Son of God, come to call you back. This is your final chance. Don't ignore this warning. There is no one left to send. This is the warning of the present. The amber light is on. Time is nearly up. So what do they do? Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Totally irrational. How can they think rejecting the owner's son is going to help their cause? How do you think this is going to work? Well, the point is it isn't, and it won't, and it doesn't. It's meant to be irrational. It's meant to be illogical. It's showing how ridiculous Israel have been to reject what God has done for them time after time. And now, at this point in our story, Jesus' history lesson turns into a little glimpse of the future. Because he's saying that Israel is going to reject him. Despite the warnings, despite the evidence of the past, Israel is going to reject him and kill him. And it's no less than he's predicted himself. If you go back just a few pages to chapter 18 in Luke, we read this section. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, that's what sometimes Jesus called himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. 
They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. I played football in my youth, still continue to play occasionally. Or in fact, I've only played twice in recent memory. Uh, first time was a number of years ago. thought, ah, you know, I'm a guy. I'm going to go to the gym sometimes. I'm not too bad shape, I guess. I was like, I'll play some football. It'll be fine. Five minutes in, sliding tackle, groin, ping, bruise all down my leg, total shambles, couldn't walk. Six months, couldn't really do any exercise at all. Total shambles. Um, we had the opportunity, we were down at a conference recently, some of the leaders of the church, and uh, there was a football game there. I thought, oh, I'll play, that'd be good. But some of the guys from other churches, that'd be fun, we'll have a good old game. My wife Becky says, remember what happened the last time? You know, five minutes in, you were done. I was like, no, 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 I didn't warm up properly. I was like, yeah, I didn't, you know, I just didn't do it right. I'll be fine this time, I'll make sure I do my stretches. My groin was fine, five minutes in, turn away if you're uh, of a nervous disposition. That's what happened to my ankle. Yeah, it's not very pretty. So that was five minutes in. Uh, not not good. <laughs> so, yeah. I didn't learn. Didn't learn my lesson. So I have ignored the evidence of the past. The evidence of the past is clear. I tore my groin in five minutes. I even had the warning of the present. My wife says, you're going to do this again. You're, it's going to happen. And yet, there we are. And I failed to, I failed to heed her warning. And Israel has ignored the same evidence of the past. It was much more serious. It's about to reject Jesus' warning of the present. And the consequences are going to be more than a sprained ankle. So let's look at what comes next. The consequences of the future. The amber light is on. It's about to turn red. Time is running out. God has been patient with you, Israel. You're about to reject his precious son, the one with all the authority of heaven. His patience with you will finally run out. What happens next? Let's read verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now again, to us, that, I guess that probably seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh, you know, God has given them every chance, or the owner has given them every chance. They've persistently rejected him, fair enough. But again, the people listening are f- absolutely flabbergasted. So God forbid, it says in verse 16, other translation says, may this never be. Like, they, they cannot believe this. It's terrible. Because for thousands of years, we've had the same pattern of God blessing Israel. Israel failing, but God delivering and continuing to bless. Fail, bless, deliver. All that. God has reached out to Israel. No matter what, every time, God has continued to keep his people close and look after them. Wooed them back. Remade his promises. Delivered them. And so at verse 16, Israel, when they're reading this, Jews reading or listening to this, are expecting it to say something like this. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will eventually deliver them, forgive them, and remake his promises to them because they're his precious people. That's what they're expecting. So when Jesus says, no, that's not what's going to happen. He's going to kill those tenants and give it to somebody else. God forbid. How can God do this? Israel have always been his precious nation. Are we saying, this is, this is a stark warning for the Jews. A time is coming where God is going to act decisively. And if Israel refuses to model God's character, they can no longer be his chosen nation. He'll need to start again, new ambassadors, new, uh, new ambassadors who will display his character better. And Jesus is saying to Israel, you've confused God's patience with his indifference, thinking that there's nothing they can do to separate themselves from God. But the warning is clear that time is running out, that this is not the case. And this is shocking stuff to the Jews, utter disbelief. Surely God would never do such a thing. God forbid. Jesus sticks the knife in. Oh, really? He says. 
He doesn't say that. But he says, this is what I think he says. They didn't record this. Oh, really? Verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, okay, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And here he quotes from one of the many promises in the, in the old part of the Bible, a book called Psalms, uh, which says just what he has said would happen. That the, the nation of Israel would reject God's chosen one. The picture here is of a, a pile of stones that builders are sifting through as they're building something. And they pick up a stone and they look at it and, oh, don't like the look of that one much. Doosh, turf it back on the pile. But in fact, that one that they've just thrown away, that is the very cornerstone, the basis, the, the most important stone upon which everything else is built. They've rejected it. Uh, and that's the most important stone. It's another way of Jesus saying, you're going to reject me. And in doing so, reject God's chosen one. It's been predicted thousands of years before. I'm telling you now, and you still don't believe it. You're still not listening. You've ignored the past. You're ignoring the warning of the, the, the present. And here we find out what the dire consequences are of the future. Jesus is that cornerstone. And verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. How Israel respond to Jesus will determine their ultimate destiny. And those who reject him, finally, will end up like the tenants. He's saying here, you fall on the stone, it's bad for you. Stone falls on you, it's bad for you. It doesn't matter how you encounter this stone, it's bad news for you. Smashed to pieces, crushed to bits, which do you prefer? Rejecting Jesus means destruction, destruction that cannot be undone. You've ignored the evidence of the past. You're rejecting the warning of the present. And there's going to be irreversible consequences in the future. Strong stuff. Unpopular stuff when he was saying it. Probably unpopular now when I'm saying it. But of course we can see Jesus is right because only a couple of sentences later down at verse 19, they looked for a way to arrest him with a view to putting him on trial and killing him. Stick with us for the next few weeks up toward Easter and you'll see that Jesus' predictions are totally accurate, stunningly accurate. Everything he said about himself is true. The evidence of the past, the warning comes, the amber light is on. Jesus is saying, I'm the last one. No one else can call you back. Reject me and that's it. But we'll see the leaders in the nation do exactly that. Fail to heed Jesus' words. It's quite easy for us looking on with it all laid out like that. To so, I mean, How could Israel be so daft? They've got like thousands of years of history all showing this pattern. How could, they, how could they fail to see that? How could they ignore this warning, so obvious warning that Jesus has given? And the consequences are so severe. How could they do this? But before we crow too loudly, this pattern of failure goes beyond the nation of Israel. In fact, all humanity has failed to live as God intended us to live. Right from the beginning of the world, from creation, way before Israel, humans were made, humankind was made, to be God's ambassadors. The Bible tells us that humans have been created in God's image. His stewards put here on earth to reflect his likeness and to look after the world that he's created. So instead of Jewish tenants in God's vineyard, humanity are God's gardeners in God's garden. And have we done any better than Israel? 
As a human race, how well do we reflect God's character? The Bible says that God is patient, kind, good, loving, self-controlled. Is that the kind of society that we live in now? Is that the kind of world that we see around us? For all our progress, are we any happier, kinder to one another, looking after the world better, tolerant, understanding, satisfied with life? I doubt any of us could answer yes to that. I doubt anyone looking at the world would say that. Record levels of depression, record levels of suicide, record levels of dissatisfaction, loneliness, isolation, relationship breakdown. In fact, one of the reasons God needed to choose Israel to be his ambassadors is that the rest of humanity was even worse, had made even more of a mess of it. They needed a model nation to show them how bad they were. And sure, Israel didn't do a very good job, but they were, the rest was even worse than that. Our forebearers made a right mess of it all. But on our watch, are we doing any better? So the warning of this parable then is for us, for the human race. We are God's gardeners, and we have spectacularly failed to give and produce the fruit of displaying his likeness. Time after time, century after century, generation after generation, we've ignored the evidence of the past. And similarly, God is warning us in the present patiently in different ways. He's warning us through this story, through what we've read in the Bible. The the air has been sent to us and we've rejected him too. The amber light is on. Jesus is warning us that it's nearly, nearly red, but God continues to speak to us, continues to give us chance after chance. He speaks to us through creation as we look out and see the world around us. It tells us something about God. He speaks to us through the Bible, through church today, through what this church does, through being in church, through listening to me talk. These are all the ways that God is wooing you back and saying, listen to me. He's saying today, right now, to all of us, look at the evidence of the past. He's saying, heed the warnings of the, of the present. And just like Israel, how we respond to Jesus will determine our final destiny. It will have eternal consequences. Prophets of doom are just alarmists with their predictions of the apocalypse. We are the ones who are committed to conserving the majesty of God's creation. Not spoken by first century Jews, but spoken by the dawn. Climate change has its naysayers who are allegedly ignoring the evidence of the past, rejecting the warnings of the present, and saying the consequences won't be that bad. They're saying, look, the light, it's barely amber. We're nowhere near red. We've got plenty of time yet. And that's important. We've got to respond to climate change, but there's more important things happening. How are we going to respond to Jesus' warning? If you don't know Jesus, look at the evidence for yourself. Don't listen to uninformed naysayers. Look at the evidence of the past. Read the account of Jesus' life. See if it rings true. Take the Bible in front of you. Take it home. It's our gift to you. Speak to a Christian you know. If you don't know any Christians, come and speak to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Don't continue ignoring the amber light. The red light is coming. Christians here, what about us? What do we do? Don't presume on God. Following Jesus is more than just lip service. God expects and demands fruitfulness. A living faith in Jesus produces change in your life. 
faltering change, failing change, imperfect change, all those things, but change nonetheless. Don't think coming to church once a week and then living exactly how you like Monday to Saturday is what God wants of you, or that you have Christian parents, or that you know someone who goes to church. These things aren't what matters. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Your life has to align with what you say. Don't think you can treat God with indifference six days a week and then come to church on the seventh and that he'll be happy with that any more than he was with the way that Israel acted. So what do we do? All peoples of every generation have shown their inability to live as God intended, including us, including us right now, to protect, care for one another, demonstrate God's character. The problem is so deep, so ingrained. What are we going to do? What hope is there? How can such rebellion be undone? Well, the answer is hinted at here in this passage. Verse 18, look down. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. One of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, reflecting on Jesus' death after it happens, gives us another way of looking at it. He says this, Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus' murderous death was not the ruining of God's plan, but the means that his death was for us. This was how God would free us to live rightly in a way that we've never been able to do. And this is just as he predicted. Jesus was broken to pieces so that we would stay whole. He was the one that was crushed to bits so that we would be spared. There's a song that we sing here that I think sums it up pretty well as it talks about Jesus. What riches of kindness he's lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's our hope. Listen to the warnings. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these words are hard to hear. Just as they were for Israel, we say, may this never be. God forbid that you should turn against us like that in judgment. And yet, you have made a way for us to be brought back once and for all through what Jesus has done, that he was crushed, that he is the one who was killed instead of us so that we could be part of your family and redeemed once and for all, brought back precious children. We pray that we would heed these warnings, that we would live rightly for you. If we know you, that we would live lives that reflect that reality. And if we don't know you, that we would turn to you. We wouldn't ignore the evidence of the past. We wouldn't reject the warning. And we wouldn't ignore these consequences that are coming. Help us to be changed by what we've read and thought about this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening so um, carefully. Do we have some questions, Ian? We do. We they do are. have some questions. Um, may I invite you?